to Tomorrow Today, Weapons of Mass Disinformation, Brian Murphy. And so most of you will be familiar with the Rosetta Stone. If you're not, this is a large tablet that was found in Egypt that dates back to about 196 BC. It's inscribed with three versions of a decree that was issued by King Ptolemy. What it actually said it isn't important as much as how it was said. These, this decree, this text, was written in three different scripts. Greek, which has a remarkable resemblance to modern Greek and the Greek that's still used today. The second language was Demotic, which was an ancient Egyptian script used just for official documents like tax ledgers. And hieroglyphics, the script used primarily for sacred texts, religious writings. We're all familiar with hieroglyphics, right? Uh, if you're not, just look at how I write. My wife says my writing looks like hieroglyphics. But the Rosetta Stone is important because it became the key to deciphering the Egyptian scripts after the knowledge of hieroglyphics was lost sometime around the 5th century BC or CE. While you might know about the Rosetta Stone, what most of you probably won't know about and won't be familiar with is 21 years before the Rosetta Stone was discovered, in 1778, a German surveyor published a copy of an inscription he found on a large rock relief on a cliff at Mount Behistun in the Karmash province of Iran. The Behistun inscription dates back to 515 BC, making it 319 years older than the Rosetta Stone. And what's really interesting about it, it was possibly the first roadside billboard. It was, and I know most of you thought Burma Shave signs were the first roadside billboards, but no, uh, it was uh, the Behistun inscription. Anyone traveling between Babylon and Medea could see this stone, this inscription by the side of the road. And it was also written in three texts, three different languages. The three different forms of cuneiform script that were used was Old Persian, which Darius I invented just to be used here at the Behistun site, Elamite, which was used by the Elamite people of present-day Iran until the invasion of Alexander the Great, and Babylonian, which was actually the first Semitic language. Now, the Behistun inscription became to cuneiform what the Rosetta Stone was to Egyptian hieroglyphics. So you might be wondering what message the Behistun inscription was meant to convey. Was it something as innocuous as the Rosetta Stone? Well, it turns out that the creators, Darius I, spent a lot of time, effort, and shekels to, to set up this stone. He even had this entire language created for purpose of creating the stone. And what does it say? Well, it details the rise of Darius I, sometimes known as Darius the Great, to the Persian throne. It talks about him. It's all about him. And most historians now agree it's also the earliest known example of propaganda. Propaganda is defined by Merriam-Webster as the spreading of ideas, information, or rumor for the purpose of helping or injuring an institution, a cause, or a person. Ideas, facts, or allegations spread deliberately to further one's cause or to damage an opposing cause. Propaganda, as we all know, is still being used, and it's being used even more effectively than it was by Darius the Great. Our guest on today's episode of Tomorrow Today is an expert in the modern incarnation of propaganda, digital propaganda misinformation and disinformation, which is, I suspect, as we all know, is spreading a heck of a lot faster and is infinitely more effective and damaging than chiseling a memo into a stone billboard along an ancient road. So here to talk to us about that is actually, uh, full disclosure, a friend of mine, uh, Brian Murphy. Brian, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. You know, this is normally the time, Brian, when I'd ask you to share your background, but I know you and I know you will basically downplay it and downplay your background. So I'm going to read into the record for you a little bit. Uh, I hope it doesn't embarrass you, but I'm sure our listeners would like to know a little bit about who this fellow is. Well, Brian holds a BA in government from the College of William & Mary. He has a master's in Islamic studies from Columbia and underachiever that he is, he's currently pursuing a doctoral degree at Georgetown University. Now that's his academic credentials, but his professional CV reads like a Tom Clancy novel. I got to tell you, uh, Brian served as an infantry officer in the Marine Corps from 1994 to 1998. He joined the FBI in 98, uh, where he worked for 
about 20 years, except for a brief, let's call it a vacation, when he was recalled back to the Marine Corps in 2004, he voluntarily deployed to Iraq. When he came home, he ended up leading the FBI's national-level counterterrorism program. He led counterterrorism investigations with a focus on illicit financing. He led the first illicit financing case related to the counterterrorism, uh, in, to counterterrorism in the post-9-11 environment. And, you know, I, I said only half-jokingly that his story could have been drawn from a Tom Clancy novel. Well, Brian and his work actually became the subject of a feature article in a terrific edition of Desquire magazine. We're going to link to that article. It's titled Brian Murphy versus the bad guys. And it talks about how Brian took down or helped take down a 9-11 linked terrorist effort through sheer force of will, basically. Now, just finishing up, rounding out his extraordinary time of service, Brian uh, I should tell you salient to our conversation today, he left the FBI to become the acting undersecretary for the Office of Intelligence Analysis for the U.S. Department of Homeland Security for DHS. And, well, I'm going to let him tell the rest of the story. But what I will tell you is, on a personal note, I spent the last 30 years working at the intersection of technology and psychology. And what Brian is going to talk to us today is is something that I'm passionately interested in. So, Brian, did I get anything wrong on your background? Well, the only thing I'd like to point out is that when that Esquire magazine article came out, I couldn't find one. They were all sold out. And then when I went to my parents' house, I found out where they were all they were all at. You know, my mom had <laughs> the local newsstand, I think, bought, uh, you know, 100 copies or whatever was out there. But uh, no, I, I think I think you covered it more than... Um, and I certainly would have, but I appreciate the uh, the strong uh, introduction, and it's great to talk with you again today. No, it's great, always great to talk to you. And you know, I, I brought the listeners up to the point where you were working with DHS, and you're not with DHS anymore. You're not in the government anymore, correct? No, I've I've joined the real world. I'm in the private sector. <laughs> I don't know how real world the real world is, but be that as it may, would you mind taking a few minutes and, and sharing with uh, our listeners what precipitated your departure from DHS? Sure. So I have the uh, distinction of being the highest ranking whistleblower in the U.S. government history, as far as as far as we know, um, meaning that there could be other ones and we just don't know who their identity is. Um, but what brought me to that, uh, gaining that title, um, was I joined DHS in 2018, had a couple of programs in intelligence under me, one was bringing out and creating a nascent program, which did not exist uh, at that time, which is how to counter really Russian and other state-backed um, disinformation, which was being propagated even post-2016, obviously, in the homeland. As a part of that process, uh, you know, as a career official, started um, understanding there was other political objectives, I'm just putting it very mildly here, that were at play there that from an intelligence perspective, um, the individuals that work with me and, and for me and myself included, rightfully thought that we had higher ethical principles, which was uh, you know, defending the Constitution and American people first over politics. So uh, what ended up happening is um, yeah, at this point, the information was highly classified, but we knew that um, uh, Vladimir Putin had signaled to all the services across the Russian establishment that he was going to repeat the playbook that they ran in 2016, which is to undermine the uh, Democratic candidates and try to make now President Trump in 2018 appear to be, um, you know, the, the candidate of choice. So Canada, yeah. highly, highly politically uh, toxic to some, but regardless of the, the politics of it, you know, we tried to get the information to the right people and, there was just a, a lot of unethical barriers and, and what I think are illegal barriers that were put out there. So that that led me to issue not one, but three whistleblower complaints to the federal government. You know, I'm just going to interject there. While I really, I appreciate your circumspection, I appreciate your reticence to, you know, name names, and uh, I have no such residences. But what I'm going to tell our listeners is, well, and the risk of taking away the punchline here, uh, Brian filed these whistleblower complaints, and they were ultimately investigated by the inspector general. We're going to put a link to that IG report on the show notes uh, on our website. We're going to encourage all of you to read it. It's actually, it, it's a fascinating read. It, it doesn't read like a typical, I've read a lot of 
IG reports and government reports. This one is is amazing. Uh, you could probably take this and make the next Esquire article out of it. Uh, fascinating read. But why don't you give us the the crucible of what what did the IG come out and say? So the IGs come out uh, three times and val- what, uh, I mean, they validated uh, several parts of my whistleblower complaint, which wasn't just about Russian disinformation. There were some other areas uh, out there as well. So the first one was that the IGs put some reports out on is, you know, identified through factual intelligence that the threat from white supremacy was an enduring threat and was the most dangerous threat if you look at murders um, as, as a metrics, right? So white supremacist, since, uh, with, with several exceptions, 9-11 obviously being enormously important there, sure. is the most lethal threat in the United States. So that is something that the um, administration and, and really DHS specifically from a political perspective was trying to suppress. And by the way, just to give the listeners some context, it was only 11 days ago, I think, that we had the Buffalo shooting that was clearly right? It was, it was manifestly, admittedly racially motivated. We just had uh, that school shooting, that horrific school shooting in Texas, yet another one. Uh, this one, we don't know that there was any sort of a, a, a white nationalist or any of those uh, issues at play. But, you know, your point's incredibly well taken. When we look back at the history of, of how these events have unfolded and who the perpetrators have been, yeah, it, this is the same groups. Yeah, so that, that was that was kind of one area. The, an, another area was uh, really about the um, the Russia piece I talked about, and the most recent IG results that came out talked about the suppression that was being done by Secretary or Acting Secretary Chad Wolf um, on that, and just really validated my initial claim, saying that yes, he he was involved for political purposes, and um, you know trying to suppress uh, information that that we were putting out and. You know, kind of the whole way through as, uh, you know, I, I knew very shortly that my tenure there was going to be, uh, how to put it, rocky <laughs> and probably wouldn't survive very long um, because I could see very, very quickly that what mattered wasn't, you know, doing the right thing, but rather, again, this kind of political perspective. And and I'm not blind to the fact that politics is, is obviously a major part of government. Uh, it's probably interesting to even say that. Yeah, you know, it, it, it is, but it isn't. You know, let me say for, for the people who are listening who haven't worked in the government sphere, and you and I, we we crossed paths, or at least we shared uh, the same buildings at different times working in the, uh, in the intelligence community, defense, security entities. Um, there really isn't that politics that people might think, right? This whole notion of a deep state and people have this political agenda, that's largely bullshit. Most... And, and I've known literally thousands of people, literally thousands as you have, who've worked in all three of these arenas, right? Whether it's defense, security, or intelligence. And we check our politics at the door. Uh, I've never met anyone who would get into a heated political debate during work hours. Now, we, we're human beings and we have passions and we have feelings about these things. But to presume that there is, you know, a conservative and a liberal perspective in the intelligence community or a con- or worse still a republican and a, or a democrat who is in these positions of trust look you know one of the things that always astounded me in my time working with government is the heads of these entities and agencies are definitionally political appointees and yet they don't bring politics right that had always been the norm and tell me if i'm wrong wasn't that the norm for most of your career I mean, 99% of it, and I could not agree with you more. And, and I don't think you or I are saying that, you know, government employees are perfect. They're certainly not. There's many mistakes that are made. That is all true. But yeah. really uh, having to, like, understand at any level what someone's politics was, I never heard or saw before. It, it would have been an anathema, you know, only months before to try to even determine what someone's politics were right. because nobody, nobody cared. It was irrelevant to the job, and it should be irrelevant to the job. Instead, you have a mission, you know, no matter where you are, you know, in the intelligence field, and, and there are different kind of lanes in the road, but it's nothing to do with your politics of it. Yeah, you know, several of my very, very close friends are presidential appointees, and to this day, I, and look, I'm uh, a left-leaning liberal. Uh, most people know that. I, I lean so far to the left, I tip over occasionally, but 
it doesn't matter, right? It's never mattered until just a couple of years ago, as you say, we never would have known. And and even if we did, there was this commonality, right? We were all there for the good of the nation, for the serving people. There were, was an ethos that, that drove uh, our behavior far more than our personal politics. To your point, we're all human beings. We all have our own political perspective, but that wasn't the driving force. Yeah. And so I obviously, um, I'm not the only one who's experienced this change. There are a lot of casualties of the uh, last administration, and, and that's unfortunate. Yeah. You know, I, I would say that where I was able to make up ground and uh, hopefully set some paths uh, forward was, you know, what do, we, what do we do about this threat from, let's say it's Russia, China, Iran, other threat actors that are working below the radar um, and, you know, looking at information to undermine uh, democracy in the United States and play on our cleavages, which are many in the United States, sure. to exasperate the threats that are out there. And, you know, I'm glad you brought that up. And and I think that's the direction I'd love to take the rest of the conversation in. Look, we could sit here and we could debate U.S. politics ad infinitum forever. That isn't really what I want you to talk to you about. Um, I, although I, I'd be thrilled to talk to you about that, but that to me is a two scotch conversation when I come down to the Beltway next time. But what I really want to talk to you about, uh, you had mentioned while you were talking about these things that there was disinformation. Do you mind level setting with us? Everyone hears these terms bandied about misinformation, disinformation, property. Can you? Define the terms for us. In, in particular, what's the difference between misinformation and disinformation? Well, I, I'm going to get right to those definitions because I, I think what you just hit on is extremely important. And But where we are right now is disinformation is, uh, for a lot of people, it means everything to everybody, right? So therefore, it means nothing. And it's become very politicized. What it, what it means in terms of definition from an academic standpoint or from um, you know, what I do in my day job now is disinformation needs to have a couple components to it. Number one, and one of the key ingredients is the person behind or the people behind the campaign have to be intentionally hiding uh, who they are, mm. right? There needs to be a covert aspect for it to be disinformation. Um, and then they are they are also intentionally trying to mislead the audience. That could be, uh, or, or mislead or I'd also say um, misdirect the audience, right? And they may sound similar, but I'll break it down a little bit. So if we, the easiest use case to think about is if we think about Russia operating covert accounts in the United States, you don't know who they are, and they may be talking about things that are factual, but you still don't know who they are, and they've got an alternative motive that um, one is not easily able to recognize. Sure. So disinformation, couple ingredients, it's got the originators got to be masking their identity and they have to have an objective, a nefarious objective behind that. And that can exist along a continual, right? Because, you know, I remember one of the first places I came up against some of this and was really thinking about this. There, there's the innocuous space where it's really advertisers or, or a corporate agenda. Sure. But uh, it, where it kind of struck me was when you were seeing unknown entities weighing in on the gun debate. And people were talking about, you know, right to bear arms and, and a lot of this. And sure, people have a right to advocate for that position, absolutely. But it was disclosed this was coming from Russia. Uh, and so we masked it. They masked it in order to, you know, this troll farm in St. Petersburg is throwing a bunch of stuff out there, to your point, merely to exploit those cleavages that naturally occur within uh, our society. Yeah, that's right. And, and before I get to, like, misinformation, um, if we if we look at like politics in the United States, right? Because what I where I think we are now is people will talk about disinformation very broadly, yeah. and you'll see people on your news, you know, service of choice saying, "Well, that's disinformation," or the people trying to look at disinformation trying to suppress my uh, free speech. I I don't think that's accurate if you actually look at the definition that you and I just talked about, where. People in politics will say lots of things, and we can agree or disagree with them, and some people could be outright lying. Mm -hmm. But if you know the identity of the individual, it does not then qualify for disinformation. They, they could be spinning the truth. Again, they could be outright lying. We could violently disagree with the fact pattern. But if you know who it's coming from, you know, there are other words to describe that. But from a from a discipline of – as you, and I, I really appreciate the way you talked about the uh, some of the origins of disinformation and propaganda – 
And I'm going to go back to, if I can, pull a string on that in a minute, but there needs to be an element of covertness to it. We're hiding behind the rock as we're, and mimicking another voice as we're contributing to a conversation. To your point, uh, you know, Bernard Baruch uh, once famously said, everyone is entitled to be wrong in their opinions. No one is entitled to be wrong in their facts. If you want to tell me you think Rocky Road is the best ice cream, and I think it's it's uh, butter pecan, which, by the way, I'm right. Uh, <laughs> we can argue about that all day, but it, it becomes disinformation. If you're going to create a covert campaign to try to influence these behaviors, the, people's affinity for a particular perspective. And look, it's it, it's something companies do all the time. It's a big part of advertising. So it can be innocuous. It can be harmless. But to your point with disinformation, it is intended to affect a harm. Not only is it covert, it's intended to cause a disruption, to cause some kind of angst. And so before we go further, and I really want to return to this, but if that's disinformation, what's misinformation? So misinformation is people unintentionally sending out uh, to others, communicating to others, information that's not accurate, right? Yeah. So the big delineator here is that they, they believe it to be accurate, and they're pushing out information that's factually inaccurate. So we, we are all guilty of misinformation. Um, I'll use myself. I'm guilty of pushing out misinformation all the time. But I'm not doing it intentionally, not doing it to harm other people. The information can be harmful. Um, you know, there are a lot of examples of that, but it's not my intention. So it's all about the intentionality. And I, I think that's yeah. the way that I think of it. A, a, a consciousness, right? Uh, an awareness that what you're doing is intended to. And I think you're exactly right. You know, I we get misinformation from anyone who's listening who has kids. <laughs> misinformation aplenty. And we all have that, you know, crazy uncle who we hate to invite to Thanksgiving but there's misinformation. Hopefully it isn't the the intent to cause harm. It can be, uh, again, more, more mundane. It doesn't necessarily have to be. I, I, I absolutely agree with you. But what we're seeing that's a real difference now than I think anything we've seen in our lifetimes is the rise of very organized efforts, and in particular state actors who are engaging in this sort of a thing. It was one thing when... You know, when I was a kid, two of the misinformation campaigns, and I think, or I think you'd have to call them disinformation campaigns, and you may remember them. You're you're not nearly as old as me, thank goodness. But there were disinformation campaigns around KFC, Kentucky Fried Chicken, and around Bubble Yum Bubble Gum, right? That they, uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken, they were saying there were, there were deep fried rats. Literally, guys, uh, anyone who's listening, <laughs> ask your old relatives. Uh, and bubble yum, they were saying there were spider eggs in it. Now, that was disinformation intended to cause harm. One would expect it was mischievous. It wasn't necessarily malign. Who the heck knows? You know, did Burger King start the rumors about King? I, don't, I doubt it. But, you know, th that's always been around. But now we're seeing people are taking this darn seriously, right? There are countries, there are governments, there are millions, billions of dollars being poured into this. Yeah. And, you know, so here, some people always ask, well, what's changed? It's been around forever. And, and, and there's true, there's always been disinformation around. But I think you've, you've uh, alluded to it before. It's the scale, the speed, and the reach. So one of, one of the changes that we've seen in the context of where we all live now in social media is We've gone from the one to the many forms of communication where right. it's expensive to communicate with people, right? You you know, TV days, right, if you would, to now anybody can communicate with anybody. There's very liberating powers, and this is a good thing in the end, but it, the, the many to many forms of communication also brings challenges. And the scale and the speed. So when, when we talk about disinformation actors, you know, we're, we're all, I'll kind of bring it back maybe a little bit to this audience is what's the intersection is data. So protecting data, so whether, um, you know, it's through uh, co-lock, protected by AI, whatever, whatever the data protection element that a, that a company uses, that's step one the bad guys are after. Because if they don't have large quantities of data right. to use, they are not effective. But they do. And some it's readily available to them. Some companies don't protect themselves from. So it's not just that it's the many to the many. But it's the many to many plus an enormous amount of data, the speed and the scale, 
and the manipulation that occurs. And that's not something we've, we've seen. There are examples in the past. We've seen inflection points, the printing press, carving into a rock and, you know. Sure. <laughs> but the scale, the speed, the the accuracy, right? The the capacity to be able to do these things to, to your point, to be able to have that data to, um, you know, at the risk of doing a bit of a mea culpa, Again, no malign intent, but when I was the chief data officer for Time, Inc., what was our job? Our job was to better understand who our audience was. Uh, Why? So we could give them content that was more likely to resonate with them. Why were we doing that? Well, frankly, to attach advertising, right? And so we were in the attention business. And if you want to get people's attention, you have to – it's not just generic. You have to know that if we broke them up into A, B, C, D groups – Group A will resonate to this, and that's our more profitable group, and we want to appeal to them and not necessarily to Group C or whatever it is. That That's the fundament of modern advertising in a digital economy. Uh, and But we're talking about taking those things, you know, and dialing it up to 11. And, and to your point, not only is this not the first time in history, this isn't the first time in contemporary history, right? Uh, we're, we're talking about what uh, and look, it's not, I want to be clear for the record. It's not just Russia. Uh, uh, it's China. It's North Korea. It's Iran. It's There are a lot of nation states that are invested in this. But the, the most present in-your-face example, I think, is coming from Russia. And, you know, this isn't the, – the 2016 campaign isn't the first time that Russia decided to use these weapons, right? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a history, obviously, that goes back for a long way. But if just to, in the more modern era, I usually start with the uh, – you can pick your point, but I'm going to start with Tsarist Russia. I won't go too far back because I know we only have, uh, you know, another 30 minutes, right? We'll bore everybody to tears. But, <laughs> you know, one of the, one of the best – in a, not a good way, but one of the best tropes that's ever been out there from a disinformation campaign was put out by Tsarist Russia, uh, and it's an anti-Semitic campaign. And, you know, Tsarist Russia is under threat. The, the economy is in shambles. There's multiple reasons. Um, you know, the peasants are not happy. And so the Tsarist regime comes up with a way to um, twist and distort information and then spread it out uh, across for political purposes to attack the Jewish uh, enclaves within um, not just Russia, throughout Europe so that they have a scapegoat by which they can go after. And that, that's resonated for so they, they did that for a variety of reasons. One is their own political survival. The Russians took that, and and uh, and you're right, there are many uh, forms of this throughout history, not just in Russia, and then perfected that model over time to when we enter World War I, World War II, yeah. post-World War II, they're really good at it. Yeah. And, and the United States is not uh, – the Russians are alone. We're doing the same thing. I'll be for very different reasons. Sure. Let's not pretend this isn't uh, been a tool in the American arsenal as well, but yeah. I'll refrain from going back historically because you talk about, you know, the 1490s in Spain with that same Jewish community. And I mean, this has been since the beginning of time, I guess. But to your point, you're exactly right. During World War, of course you're right, but I, I, I hear you, you know, during World War II, uh, you really started to see this come as a peak. Everyone thinks about Joseph Goebbels and Nazi Germany and, and the propaganda machine, they forgot that Stalin was every bit as good as they were. And his machine that he put to use to be able to perpetuate and propagate this propaganda. And that's something that we're seeing now. You know, we I just had a, a great conversation. We had a guest on uh, a little bit ago who runs a software development company in Ukraine. And so it brought to mind to me today when talk, getting ready to talk to you, Ukraine became the victim, uh, not just of direct cyber attacks, but of these disinformation attacks, right? Back 2013, when there are people are taken to the streets to protest Viktor Yunukovych. And, you know, Russia's trying to prop him up. And, and that is, I think, one of the first modern manifestations of this campaigns at scale. What do you think? No, I, I believe that's a great use case to draw out. And, you know, it also shows that, uh, I think I think you and I need to get together more often, uh, except for when you know more than when you come down here. Is the Russians again? We're, we're focusing on them because they're out in front, but they look at the asymmetric information warfare to include the movement of data, the disruption of you know someone's information environment from a cyber attack perspective, 
And then how do they change hearts and minds? All is one thing. They are not separated in their context. Generally, in the Western context, they are separated. And one of the reasons that's changing, but one of the reasons that is, is because the U.S. really stopped being in the information uh, game when the Soviet Union collapsed. But as you rightly pointed out, Ukraine never had that option right? because Russia was right there behind them trying to keep that sphere of influence, uh, you know, to their benefit, right? And picking candidates through information operations um, and not just through the changing of the hearts and minds, but also through, you know, hack and release operations. I mean, everything that you that you know uh, better not. Yeah, but, but I'll pick up on your point also. You know, we can't say that we're uh, immune to using the same tactics, you know. I, I don't know if I'm proud of it or not, but I, I wrote a chapter that appeared in a book uh, back in, I think it was 2011, that talked about the work uh, we did, I did, my team did, uh, in support of the Egyptian revolution. Uh, and I titled, by the way, the chapter of the book, I titled it, uh, So You Say You Want a Revolution. <laughs> I thought it was cute, uh, picking up the Beatles theme there. Yeah, uh, But really, we talked about the same thing. We talked about how it was this combination now, and and that's where I'd love you to take us a little bit is as effective as this is to my eyes this is becoming that much more effective as a consequence of our ability to use ai machine learning natural language processing some of these capabilities conjoining those in what i call a symbiotech relationship so now you think about like the chinese 50 cent army right where you have uh those of you who don't know it's this coordinated troop of human beings of real people who are kind of like the Russian troll farm in St. Petersburg, the IRA, where they are coordinating to defeat anti-bot laws on the one hand, and on the other hand, to more humanize their capabilities. Well, I'll tell you, the next gen of machine learning, AI, natural language processing, cognitive computing, and, and that's the areas I'm passionate about, we're indistinguishable. The bots we can create now are indistinguishable, would pass any Turing test in the short term. And th they become this challenge at massive scale. So are you seeing the same thing? What, what do you think this is going to play in? Yeah, look, I, uh, absolutely. And in terms of the solution side of it, one of the solutions I've suggested, um, you know, to, to government and to anybody that will listen to me, so thanks for having me on, is we should look for the bots, don't get me wrong. We should continue to try to find them when they're out there. But yeah. we have to start teaching uh, what I call social media literacy. Um, and that's different than media literacy. And so we have uh, a push in school, right, uh, to forward our understanding of STEM with our children, to put them in a place where they're economically competitive. And I, and I think that people can judge that if it's going as good or bad as it could be. But we also need to teach kids um, so they don't make the mistakes that that I've made um, in looking at social media and probably believing what I'm seeing is accurate because I live in my own filter bubble. But we have to teach them to be skeptical uh, social media citizens and to understand how do these things work. So when they when they get their feed, they understand why they're getting good information and information that they need to be skeptical uh, about. Yeah, there, there have been a couple of great documentaries talking about this. Uh, the social effect, uh, the uh, brainwashing of my dad, uh, a couple of these that really target and talk about this. And and you make a very valid point. We don't teach critical thinking skills uh, in elementary school, in middle school, in high school. We don't think uh, discrimination of information, right? We basically become in just ingesters and whatever garbage it is, whether it's good or garbage, we don't know. We're just ingesting it. And I'm not talking about those kids today, uh, me, you, right? Uh, this is, we have uh, what in psychology is known as the mere exposure effect. You hear something often and often enough, not only do you believe it, you like it, and it becomes part of who you are. And, you know, part of that harkens me back. You, you were saying earlier in the conversation that we've changed the nature of conversations in a lot of ways, one of the more significant being, to your point, this notion of one-to-many right? It used to be only the elite had that microphone that, um, you know, you, you listen to Walter Cronkite because there was no one else to listen to. Uh, you listen to the president of the United States taking that bully pulpit because he was able to bully, right? He was able to command this attention. But now you have, on the one hand, you have, look, Twitter and Facebook and, and Instagram and all these things. But 
One of the things that struck me about this, and I'd love to hear your opinion on this, I think the democratization of information is a myth. My tweet doesn't get nearly as much attention as Kim Kardashian's. Not nearly. We've had this coinciding with a death of expertise and a mistrust of authority. We have these celebrity voices, and whether they're a celebrity politician or they are, uh, you know, a sports figure, an actor, a someone who's famous just because they're famous, they get this inordinate amount of followership, and as a consequence, the their the volume and the the breadth of their message is that much greater. Are you seeing the same thing? If you're asking if I'm seeing your picture compared to Kim Kardashian's and why she gets more, I'm, just I'm not going to go there. But uh, yeah, anyone who's ever seen me, no. <laughs> no, I'm joking, of course. Uh, so look, the, there's so many ways I could try to answer this question, but uh, let me just try one. We there's a lot of factors happening well beyond the tools that drive information. And you talked about the, uh, fortunately, the well-studied field of why is there a death of experts? And I think you're referring, that's a title of the book that's out there, sure. yeah. um, which is a great book. But that's in, that's in the background. It's always hard to know what's coming first. And I don't know if it really matters. Is it that the, the post-truth world uh, from a philosophical standpoint is actually mm-hmm. coming to reality as some philosophers suggested? Or is it the information environment? It's hard to know. Um, these things are happening together at the same time, but the end result is that the the indexing structure structure from a communications perspective, uh, where there was a range of normality that Walter Cronkite would talk from within, right? He's not going to go too far to the right, too far to the left. There's just that range that was acceptable for him and other journalists to talk to. That has changed. And so I agree with you that uh, if I well, let me you can you let me know if I got this right. I, I don't know if I would talk about it that there's a democratization of information. It's just a whole lot more information. Right. It's this cacophony. Everybody's yelling at once, and when everyone is entitled to their opinion, and they are, but when everyone has an equal voice and an equal volume of their opinion then it all gets drowned out. On the one hand, on the other hand, when we have people who are able to rise above it just as a consequence of their celebrity status, it, it makes it inherently unfair. And you know, you were talking about with Walt Cronkite, reminds me, I had a, a great conversation with one of our producers, in fact, Jake West, who uh, did a degree in journalism. And I was lamenting, you know, the days of Walter Cronkite with him. And I was saying, I wish we had, uh, could return to, you know, a more egalitarian, a more open, a more objective version of the news. And he told me that never existed. And he reminds me that there's always been this editorial bias. And it's not just that the editor herself or himself is biased, but even deciding what stories are being covered, right, is inherently a bias. So, you know, this, this school shooting that we just had recently in Texas, uh, without naming names, there are networks who are going to cover this very differently, right? Even the amount of airtime they're going to give to this is going to vary as a consequence of their political perspective. And I think increasingly we're seeing that. And one of the things that really concerns me, and and so let me put you on the spot here. Um, Everybody hates these big hypotheticals, but I'm going to give you one. Uh, In the Citizens United decision, right, the Supreme Court held that corporations have personhood status, that effectively corporations are people too. We're people too. And as a consequence, they have all the same rights as people, including First Amendment protection of speech rights. So in line with that, they made the decision to effectively remove all contribution, campaign contribution limits, and allow wealthy donors, special interest groups, and even companies to use dark money to influence elections. Okay, this is the law of the land. This isn't a matter of, I'm not, my opinion or yours doesn't really matter. That's what the law is right now. But here's my question uh, that really struck me recently. So if my company, and I lead a couple of companies that are in the Beltway, if I wanted to make a million-dollar contribution to, you know, the senator on the Appropriations Committee re-election campaign, I'm free to do that. that that's absolutely legal. So here's my question, and here's where I'm going to put you on the spot. Um, 
Jared Kushner recently took in $2 billion from Saudi Arabia to start a fund. $2 billion. According to the FEC, the Federal Election Commission, and I'm quoting here, federal law prohibits contributions, donations, expenditures, and disbursements solicited, directed, received, or made directly or indirectly by or for foreign nationals in connection with any federal, state, or local election. So Russia can't contribute rubles to a campaign. And that became a big issue with Facebook, right? That they literally were paying for some of these disinformation ads with rubles, literally. Um, But if I now have a proxy and Saudi Arabia decides to give my company a billion dollars and we set up a shell corporation, I'm good? Uh, I don't think so. I I think that you... If you start lobbying on behalf of a foreign government um, and it's not fully disclosed and declared where the money's coming from, I think I think you're probably crossing into uh, illegal activity. But hang on, you know, now we go back to where we both agreed, right? That um, I can advocate for a perspective, and so if I say, you know, guns are the greatest thing since grated cheese, and everybody should have guns, and I'm the NRA now. Uh, I pulled the NRA's 990, their their tax return a couple of years ago, and something like 80% of their contributions came from Germany, uh, which it happens to be where, you know, Sig Sauer and Glock and a lot of the big gun manufacturers come from there. That's foreign money, and it's to impact, right, the results of an American election and the American the political discourse in the U.S. Yeah, I would still say the same thing. I mean, um, that... So, so if they disclose it on their tax returns, uh, I'm not I'm not an expert in this area, but having prosecuted people for these types of things before, uh, my my kind of quick reaction to it would be if they put on their tax returns, then and they declare themselves as a lobbyist, they're probably okay, right? But if they're doing it on behalf of foreign government, they need to make that known. Yeah. And so you could argue whether they filled out all the right paperwork. Let's just say for a moment they didn't. But if they're disclosing their tax return, you can find it there's still a trail by which the money can be traceable. Yeah. In the case of Jared Kushner, probably the same thing. Look, for the record, I don't think he did anything illegal. Uh, he probably didn't, which speaks more to a challenge of our laws. And, you know, it's the same thing with we're talking about the social media entities, and let's name them, you know, we're talking about Facebook, we're talking about Twitter. Section 230, right, of the Communication Decency Act, which was passed – you know, years ago, back in 1996, where basically we were saying, oh, these poor nascent little fledgling companies in Silicon Valley, how will they survive? And it, it, look, it always stuck in my craw. It still does. When I was with Time Inc., we had, you know, Time Magazine, People Magazine, and Sports Illustrated, and all these video properties, digital properties. I put something in, we put something in that, uh, was wrong, wrongheaded, misinformation, disinformation, we were liable. Yeah. Uh, I was part of the executive team. We had these conversations every Monday during our executive team meeting. But Facebook is off the hook. And, and, and I think what we're seeing consequent to that is this ripple effect of how do we get our hands around this? And so you know, the theme of our show is everybody talks about what happened yesterday. Everyone talks about what's today. I want to focus and ask you, so what do we do to get out of this? How do we make these things better? Look, there, there's not just one answer here, right? Um, but just kind of pulling the string again on Section 230, um, this is up to Congress. And we need to advocate that uh, I think we need to advocate uh, to our elected officials, they need to do something about it. Because at stake here is not um, freedom of speech. I don't think anybody who understands Section 230 uh, would would claim that if Section 230 went away yesterday, that freedom of speech would be under threat. It just wouldn't. These companies are too big now. But the the law remains. And um, that's one thing. We do need to revise, uh, revise Section 230 probably do away with it because you know your audience may or may not know but i mean it was built as we know uh uh, under a much broader law which was about pornography and protecting small startup companies and i mean it's got a complicated and and very interesting history in of itself but we're not in that place any longer so right well and let me dispel the myth that's out there you know there's a lot of people who are listening to this will say well how could you how could you ever monitor and uh care for all these things that's that's uh 
a smokescreen. That's nonsense. Of course you can. And if you don't think you can, try posting a movie on Facebook and watch how long it stays up there or on YouTube. It'll be up there for about a nanosecond before they pull that. Try posting child pornography. Don't. But if someone were to post (laughs) child pornography on their Instagram account, it's gone instantly, right? Yeah. Uh, they have the capacity to be able to monitor these things. It's it's deliberate. They're choosing not to. Why? Because, and here's what really concerns me is, you know, we used to talk about in journalism what if it bleeds, it leads. And a little bit off topic, I'll tell you, I, I became very close friends with Joe Ripp when he was the CEO of Time, Time Inc. And he and I used to go to lunch every Wednesday just to argue. That was our entire agenda was to argue. And i Rarely won. He's a brilliant guy. Uh, but I won on one occasion when he became CEO. He very famously proclaimed in the Wall Street Journal and on every podium that would have him, we are no longer a magazine business. We are um, a content company. And what I argued with him about was on this particular lunch, I told him we're not a content company. We're in the attention business. Our entire job is to secure people's attention. And when we have that attention, we can give them an ad, right? That's the business we're in. And he conceded the point. And as I look at Facebook and Instagram and YouTube, these provocative propositions sell, right? That's what people, you or I, are. we may spend a few minutes looking at cats or puppies or whatever, but man, they put a train wreck on there, uh, and whether it's actual or proverbial, we're looking. Right. Yeah. And look, you bring up a lot of uh, very um, nuanced things in my mind. So I, I don't look at the uh, the social media companies as the enemy. No, I don't. They, they are private companies trying to make money and they, they're not they can't be Machiavellian at the same time. The one thing I bring out, though, about Facebook, Twitter, the other ones, no matter how good or bad we, we think that they're doing, they are a Swiss watch compared to a lot of these other companies who do absolutely nothing. So if you look at Discord, uh, this Chan, that Chan, Telegram, I mean, these are offenders that that make uh, Facebook- Look like Mother Teresa, yeah. Yeah, so uh, I think at least they try at some level, right? I'm not, I'm not defending them, full disclosure, we have some business with them, but I've, I've also bashed them in other arenas because I think they can do more. But the broader point is that until we change things like Section 230, their financial incentive to stay only focused, uh, you know, I don't say only, but um, stay focused on that attention is the money grabber and and not care about anything else is not going to change. Yeah. And look, I, I said I'm a left-leaning liberal. I'm also a devout capitalist. Uh, I believe in the system. I do. I've been on boards be, uh, several times. I was uh, I wrote a column for NACD, for the National Association of Corporate Directors. Uh, and I get the fiduciary responsibility. I get shareholder primacy, uh, and I think it makes sense. But we have to look at at a social obligation as well. We have to look at you know m- making sense of some of this. And I, I see a lot of this has just become unchecked anarchy. And what do you expect is going to happen? This is sort of Lord of the Flies. You know exactly what's going to happen. Sans regulation. That's why I don't vilify. Facebook or Twitter or any of those guys. I think they are pursuing the profit objective, which they're supposed to. But we as a society are supposed to put up borders around it, right? That notion of uh, laissez-faire capitalism is nonsense. It doesn't work. Capitalism without any constraints is anarchy. It's a kleptocracy. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm trying to do my part, if you would. Like you mentioned that I, uh, I am also done with my dissertation. I'm very close. It's taken me a near 10 years to get there. So I've pushed other people past that ABD barrier, that all but dissertation. You're finishing that thing. I, I'm close. I've got a, a mere 190 pages of a Gordian knot I'm trying to get straight so my committee can um, see if I'm close to actually Excellent. adding research. But my, my thesis is like, what is the ethical responsibility of the federal government in this space? Like, where's that line where they don't infringe upon free speech and capitalism, but still doing nothing isn't the answer. So I do think that we, as a, our federal government is, uh, and you pick your branch of it, is is in a space where they're not operating in a way that is good for the American people. And and they, 
know, there are a lot of areas that occurs in, but um, within the social media space, regulations are needed. Yeah. And, and I agree with you as having finally joined the other side, right? Uh, the, the capitalism and making money for the company is certainly a noble effort in my mind, but it's not like an unconstrained, go do what you want, you know, lie to people, uh, you know, just have a field day and the, the, the bottom line is all that matters. It's not the case. Right. So I do think there's a role for government. That's why we, that's the social contract that we, we struck back in the day when the constitution was founded, that we're going to give some of our liberties so that the government, uh, we trade our liberties for some levels of security and protection. Sure. But we can't trade away our liberties for security. It's, no. you know, uh, Jefferson's invocation. Um, and I'll tell you a couple of things. First, you set me up perfectly here because on an upcoming episode, we're actually going to be talking with uh, my mentor, uh, a fellow named Keith Darcy, who uh, teaches out at Wharton, and he was formerly the head of the Ethics Officers Association, widely regarded as one of the world's leading business ethicists. And I want to talk to him about the obsolescence of ethics. Has ethics run its course? Are they no longer necessary? Is it? Is it just adorable to talk about ethics and is there really a meaningful place and uh, i'd love to have you back sometime to talk about some of that uh particularly after that conversation but you know to your point also making the point that now you're on this side of the conversation so am i i spent most of my life in uniform most of my life in service and i feel like i still am you know even our company protected by ai you know our mission is to protect people property places and profits, because we think that's important. We think it's important to protect organizations uh, and their financial well-being. Let's face it, for most of us, you know, we lose our income. Uh, it ain't good. So as we, you know, start to wrap here a little bit, I, I want you to, to ask you a couple of things. First, do you think technology will have a role in helping us overcome some of the challenges imposed by technology? Think about like, AI, machine learning, uh, is it possible to even have some sort of a, a veracity score, something like akin to Google's PageRank algorithm to be able to assess the quality of information that you're looking at? Do we look at, you know, I know uh, Indiana University, their observatory on social media has built a botometer that uses machine learning to classify Twitter accounts or whether they're human or not. And I know you're doing some fascinating work right now at Logically AI. Uh, talk to me a little bit about, we, we talk about the dark side. Talk to me a little bit about how do we bring technology to help resolve some of these problems? Well, I, I think it is a major ingredient to resolve some of these problems, right? So like anything else, AI, ML, they, they are just, uh, they not just, they're tools and how we use them determines whether they're doing things that are, um, good or, or, or negative, right? I mean, it's, just, it's the humans in the end that are going to matter. But, but to answer your question, of course. So in our company, you know, we build threat classifiers to try to find harm online. And we have a, definitions as to what harm is. It's not, you know, an objective or not subjective definition. It's our people's uh, livelihoods at stake. Uh, is a property about to be destroyed? Is it uh, designed to intimidate, um, you know, from a political perspective, all those things. Uh, and build threat classifiers to find that. Doesn't mean we're always right, but we get better through our machine learning and through our algorithms to find that at scale because we're really all looking for the needle within the haystack. We have the haystack, but it's how do we find that needle in there? And so putting people on target at the same speed and scale of which all this craziness that we've talked about today happens is as important. And I think the only way to do that is having great tech, uh, machine learning that's getting better every day yeah. and, and people behind it that, that are trying to do the right thing. And they will, they will fail, but they will, they will get closer every day. But what do you think the outcome will be? You know, I used to do, well, I still do a keynote address at various conferences that I titled uh, Observations of a Myopic Futurist. And I would tell them, if any futurist is telling you what happens 100 years from now, go screaming and running out of the room, even 20 years. But if you look at the trajectory of human behavior, uh, individually or collectively, of societies, of government, uh, you can tell what's going to happen tomorrow, relatively high degree of accuracy, right? Uh, you know, I, I may not know you very well, but I know that 
it's unlikely you're going to strip naked and dance the tarantella on the table <laughs> while we're talking, unless, of course, you know, add alcohol. But it's unlikely to happen in the next two minutes. Who knows what will happen five years from now. With that in mind, I'm going to ask you to put on uh, – to look into your crystal ball. Look forward five years, a, a year even, a year, five years. Give You pick the time parameter. What does it look like? And I'm going to ask you three questions. If we get it wrong, if we get it right, and what's most likely to happen? Okay, I'll take the middle one first. <laughs> if we get it right, to me that includes – and I'm going to give the time horizon – some new regulations out there to govern all this uh, this uh, blessings that we have, which is also going to be a curse in the information environment, right? I think the time horizon um, is not next year for sure. Um, I don't see anything likely to change, but I'd say within four years, I do suspect that there will be legislation. Uh, some may not be perfect, but signed and in place to begin a process to add uh, regulation to and replace 230. So I'm optimistic there. Okay. If we if we don't do that, then I think that we are going to continue to be driven apart from each other. And instead of being able to have disagreements over lunch, uh, more people won't go to lunch to uh, with each other by which to have those disagreements because they will continue to believe from what they see and hear and look at online and in person that the person sitting across from me is the other yeah. and they're no longer human to us, right? They are some enemy that I've got to defeat at all costs in a zero-sum game. I, I've long said I think the worst thing that ever happened to humanity was the creation of the term us. and Because as soon as you have an us, you have to have a them. Yep. And once we have us and them, everything is done. So th those are kind of the two poles. What I think is reality is uh, I, I do think that things will change. Um, yeah. you, you talked about some of these shootings here. We've seen way too many of them. And then unfortunately, we kind of move on and like the next one happens, right? But I do think we're getting to uh, a, a space by which it may not be from these two very um, cowardly acts that took place, uh, heinous acts. Unfortunately, there may be additional ones to come, but I do think that the country is getting to a place where really enough's enough here. Yeah. And um, we've been here before. I don't know if we're at the moment right now, but I think it's getting there that that we know the average citizen is like, hey, look, I don't want to listen to Kim Kardashian, you know, to tell me about right. ethical advice. She may be good to watch, you know, in terms of like reality sure not my cup of tea but <laughs> but the point of it is that i do think people are getting smarter i do believe that the average person sees the same thing that you and i are talking about yeah you know i i couldn't agree with you more i've uh i've traveled a lot you've traveled a lot and one of the things that strikes me when you go to all these different countries and places and visit with these cultures we all want the same thing uh i i think you know we all want our children to be healthy and to grow up well we all want to be able to eat. We all want to feel safe at night. Um, I think in the United States, there are many, 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 many more things that unite us than divide us. I think we have many more commonalities than we have differences. To your point, do some of these disinformation campaigns look to cleave what those differences are? Absolutely. But whatever the topic is, right, uh, whether you're talking about abortion or guns or or nuclear proliferation, I think there's a common ground for all of us where we can say, this is rational. And and those are the conversations worth having, right? Then we can talk about the grays. I, and I'm more than willing to have those conversations with anyone. It's the fundamentalist who becomes the challenge. And, and these disinformation, misinformation campaigns are trying to turn us all into fundamentalists, essentially, right? What I believe must be right. So all that said, would you mind spending uh, just a minute or two and share with us what our listeners can do, what they can do, right? We, we talked about the political uh, proclivities, propensities, possibilities. What about the person who's listening to this? What can they do to improve their cybersecurity, their cyber hygiene, their awareness, uh, but to become more social media savvy, let's say? Um, what, what can they do? So, you know, it's funny, I've been asked this question a couple of times, and um, I'll, I'll give you hopefully two useful answers. The first is cyber hygiene. You talked about it. Don't be part of the problem. If you're not protected, you've just given your data away to people that will use it for ill. Mm -hmm. Okay, you want to give it away, uh, have at it, you know, that, that's one thing. But I have, so, so cyber hygiene, 
make sure, and it's not just the individual, but if you're working in the government or a big, uh, uh, you know, company or a small company, protect what you have. You may not understand what's happening in the background, but people want your data for a lot of reasons. And from a disinformation, you know, as we talk about cleavage uh, as being the, the, what they're trying to divide us against, protect your data because without that data, they're useless. Yeah. And and for those of you who are listening, who aren't, this is a new term for them. Uh, cyber hygiene, I define it as being a set of practices that both organizations and individuals could perform regularly to maintain the health and security of users, devices, networks, data. Think about it as personal hygiene, right? Or or keeping your office space clean or your, your home space clean, truly hygiene, making sure that you stay on top of these things. You know, how many of us use the same darn password for everything and then never change it? How many of us, you know, leave that password taped up on our desk? Uh, even the small things to think about are, are really worth thinking about. And so what I'm going to ask you now, uh, Brian, is uh, this is what I refer to as the time for shameless self-promotion. Uh, I, I'd love you to tell us a little bit more about the work you're doing at Logically AI now. And uh, yeah, why don't, why don't you just tell us a little bit about that, if you don't mind? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I think I may have touched on this a bit, so I was going to make it brief here. Um, but we basically look at social media at scale. If you, if you think of the platform, we are collecting the API. And we, we put it into one big data pool here in Virginia. And then the sweet sauce of the company is how do we take that data, normalize it um, across uh, various uh, types of data so that when it hits the customer's page, they can find the thing that they're looking for, that needle in the haystack, and save them invaluable amounts of time uh, instead of doing Easter egg hunts and going down rabbit holes. Sure. We use that AI and ML to give them that information advantage back in whatever situation we're looking at. That's kind of what we do uh, at a nutshell. But I, I will go back to what I said, and I appreciate the, the shameless plug, but what you guys are doing, it really does start, and we talk about this every day in our company. If you don't got yourself buttoned down the way you need to be, yeah. it, we are we will not be effective as a company because we know that adversaries are after us. So if we're leaking data, it's all for nothing. You know, it staggers me. I was talking with uh, Brian Gallagher, my, my business partner, about this, uh, and it, it's – it staggers me that when I was a kid, my grandfather owned a hardware store. He would never have thought of just leaving the door wide open, leaving the register full, and just going home for the night. You know, don't turn on the alarm, none of it. We do that every day with our data now, right? We say that data is our most valuable asset and data is the new oil. We say that, but then we leave the door unlocked, the alarm turned off, and the register full. Uh, and we, I'm shocked, shocked, I say, that the bad guys, you know, Willie Sutton was once asked why he robbed banks. He said, well, that's where the money is. Uh, why are these people coming after our data? Because that's where the money is. And if you make it that much easier for them, you know, uh, I'll tell you, we have um, an ADT alarm system on our residence. And I'll tell anyone who's lurking, who's thinking about breaking into my house, we have an ADT alarm system. Uh, but, you know, uh, I my wife hates it when I say this, but I think the most valuable part of that system is the sign they give you for your lawn. Because to me, you know what that sign says? Go burglarize the neighbors. Uh, <laughs> right? Uh, it's it, it, yeah. that deterrent effect of knowing you're taking cyber hygiene seriously, that you're securing your environment. These crooks tend to be, and, and even the state actors, they tend to be opportunistic. And they're going to go after the easier target. Why waste their time? They wouldn't have gone out, you know, as angry as North Korea was at Sony, uh, they wouldn't have gone after the systems they went after if they were nearly impenetrable. They'd have gone after an alternative uh, attack vector. So that said, um, kind of wrapping things up, is there any company cause, organization, resource? We're going to put some links on the show notes uh, on our website. And by the way, those of you who are listening, our website is tomorrowtoday.show. That's tomorrowtoday.show. And we're going to put uh, a couple of links, including to Logically AI, if we can, so people can learn more about the work you're doing there. We're going to definitely put up a link to that Inspector General's report, to uh, some of the books that uh, we had discussed and mentioned during the conversation, and, well, whatever else we can think of. But in addition to that, is there a company, cause, organization, a resource, anything you think our listeners should also be aware of? Wow, that is a, a profound question in my last uh, few seconds here. Uh, where, to, where to begin? I mean, I think uh, there, there's so much good work happening in the, in the world that I live in. It's hard for me just to pick one. 
Um, but I'll, I'll take a I'll take a stab. I think spend some time trying to uh, pick up an academic journal. I know it can be dry, uh, and I've written some articles, so I know they're dry. Uh, to to get more social media literate, I, your your audience here yeah. is not the average person. They they live in this world. They're sophisticated uh, in the sense of you know this is what they want to know about, and so become social media literate. You know, so look for these journals. I can maybe afterwards give you a couple links. To yeah, we would love that because I think that's very consistent with the ethos. That's why we do this. Uh, that's why we're doing this show. That's we don't want to doing this for commercial purposes. We don't even take sponsors because we think that there are a bunch of really smart people out there who are frustrated, who want to be able to do something to contribute. And that's why I ask these questions. That's why we have the entire conversation is essentially what our audience members can do and how they can help. And uh, before I sign off, it, it, will it be okay if we call you, call on you sometime to come back and continue the conversation? Uh, absolutely. We'll look forward to it. Um, and I know I'm going to be listening to the future podcasts. I've listened to some of the past ones as well. So I, think <laughs> I look forward to being a, a participant and also a learner. And I think what you guys are doing is just great. That's great. I appreciate that. Thank you. And I want to thank all of you for tuning in and for your commitment to helping us create a better tomorrow today. 